0: Welcome to Innovations in Education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. I am so excited here to welcome Megan McKay to our show. Megan, you've been obsessed with fostering thriving school communities ever since your first teaching job 30 years ago. Your experiencing starting, managing, and leading school systems led you to found Leverage Ed to connect leaders with each other and their superpowers and collectively create a new space in the education sector. Now, prior to Leverage Ed, you co-founded Zeta Charter Schools in 2017 and served as principal, MD of schools and MD of the Education Institute for Success Academy Charter Schools from 2012 to 2017. Previous to that, you taught seventh to 12th grade language arts, you developed educational software, student information systems. You wrote curricula, consulted on instructional design, and helped found chartered schools in Boston, Trenton, and the Bronx. You received your BA in art history from Stanford University and MA in education from the University of San Francisco. You are currently a doctoral student at NYU's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, Human Development, and Leadership and Innovation, and an emerging educational policy scholar at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Megan, you serve on the Mott Haven Academy Charter Schools Board and on the advisory councils for the Stanford Graduate School of Education, as well as the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I am so happy to have you on our show today. Welcome, Megan McKay, to Innovations in Education with David Adams. Thank you so much, David. Great to be here. So, Megan, as I'm reading your bio back to you and getting a sense of all the things that you've accomplished in the world, how about you tell me your educational story? Why education Out of all the things that you could have put your talents towards, what made you focus on education as a place to put your energies?
1: So when I was in college, I volunteered to teach P.E. at an elementary school, was a big sister through Big Brothers Big Sisters. I worked in a preschool, did a study through a local art gallery focused on talking to kids about art. And I was a camp counselor. So I love being with kids. So I decided to become a teacher. It wasn't that hard a path to see myself being on. So my first job was at a school that was an alternative for kids who had trouble in the public school system. I was 21 and I was really idealistic. I thought I was gonna go change the world. And I knew that children should have access to really good education. And the concertina wire that surrounded the school on top of the fencing should have been my first clue that this was not going to go the way that I thought it was going to go. I like to think about the soundtrack of the school. And in some schools, there's this steady hum of thinking and people doing things out loud and kind of narrating what they're doing, piecing things together. And in other schools, you hear a lot of teacher talk without a lot of engagement from kids. Well, the first school I worked in was a cacophony. It was really a lot of yelling and it wasn't a good place for kids. Turns out it wasn't a good place for adults either. And even though I was young and I didn't know much, I did know it was not a good place for kids and that they deserved much better than what they were getting. So I went back to school, learned a little bit more, taught in other schools so I could learn how to undo what that first school experience was for me. And for the kids, especially. And I was determined to do something about it. So first through teaching and then through leading schools and then founding schools myself. So that's
0: sort of the path. So first of all, I was also a camp counselor and I was a camp counselor at Camp Spirits Elder Bar in Pennsylvania. It was a YMCA camp. And that was a great experience. I remember I called my mom and dad after my first cabin. I called them up and I said, thank you for all that you did for me as a child raising me. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I didn't realize how challenging kids were until I had to be a counselor and lead them. And they thought that was funny. So big brother, that was me. Camp counselor, that was me. We got a lot in common.
1: A lot in common. And I think you probably agree with me that school should feel a lot more like camp.
0: Mm, I do. One of our principals, Ingrid Chung, over at the Applied Math and Science School in the Bronx, she actually targets camp counselors for her teachers. That's the energy she wants to bring. and she she recruits specifically from that, that background. So 21-year-old Megan walks into the space and you know that it's not doing what it can. So walk me through the, and so I am founding charter schools. And so I am putting myself in a place to reimagine what public education could look like. Some people just look at it and you know what, like somebody should fix this. This is a problem that somebody should work on. Why you?
1: I have a mantra that I live my life by, and it's really about people and purpose. And I think that if you surround yourself with good people who want to make things happen, things happen. And I think that really agreeing on what is the purpose of us here on this planet. And I actually feel like that, that school setting, even though it was a sort of terrible experience, at the same time, like it really drove me to do what I do. And So while I was teaching at a school in Boston, I was teaching at a high school, and one of my husband's business school classmates, she said to me, you're a teacher, right? Do you want to help me? I'm going to go start a charter school. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, I don't know. We're going to figure it out. So the challenge was really to combine kind of the best of all different kinds of cultures and languages, really recognizing that there's opportunity and differences with really high standards. And so I was in charge of the standards way back in 1995 when very few places had standards that were written down. So I found some and studied them, collected them, and then we worked through what the standards would be. So that was sort of my first foray. And because it was in Boston, I kind of felt like it was revolutionary because it was in the bed of the revolution, the American revolution. So I felt like, What better place to start a revolution in
0: really changing the way kids are educated? So they bring you on and they're like, hey, we want to do a thing. And you're like, what's that thing? And they're like, it's called a charter school. And you're like, good enough for me, right? I got passion, I got smarts. Let's figure this out. And this is the standards-based movement at the time, as you were talking about, right? Like, we are teaching to create an outcome that is relatively predictable and while the inputs vary, the outcome should be stable. And then you find these standards. Keep going with me. Like you're in the school, you're opening it up. What do you learn about education? What do you learn about kids? What do you learn about the teaching and learning process as you yeah. are working on this revolution?
1: Well, so I sort of took, you know, what little I I had been teaching for about five years at that point and middle schools and high schools. And I felt like I had dipped my toe in, but I hadn't fully committed to You know, what can we do that's different? I was typically, you know, it was kind of shut your door, shut your mouth, and we'll see you in June and let's see how it goes. But I think being able to create something that was really nothing before was really exciting to me. I like to think of myself as a creative person. And so I just feel like that amount of flexibility and autonomy to do what we thought was going to be best for kids. Was really exciting, and so I would say that took me to you know fast forward another ten years. I helped start another school in Trenton, New Jersey, and and my job was to design the middle school and high school reading and writing program. And essentially, was I had this idea about writing across the curriculum. It shouldn't just be in your literature and your writing classes. That's where you're doing your writings. I later became the board chair there. And I still work with the leader from the school there, different leader, but they're now serving pre-K to 12, which is amazing. And then, you know, that led me to another foreign into other schools with a different, a very different idea about how we might integrate foster kids in with general population and give everybody the same, some of the same experiences but recognizing that you meet kids where they are and so this is it's a very special place it's one school it's pre-k to eight it's in Mott Haven in the South Bronx and 30% of the kids are foster youth 30% are child welfare involved and the balance are children who live in the neighborhood and it really social workers are on staff they work closely with the teachers They've just reimagined the way that you should. It's not just a school for foster kids. It is a great school. I would send my kids to school there every single day. And then four and five were Zeta, right? Zeta was Zeta Charter Schools. I co-founded with somebody I had worked with at Success. We applied for two charters off the bat, and I had the dream job of being able to design and create all the curriculum and instruction and training And my co-founder, who is the CEO and runs the schools today, she dealt with all the elected officials and the finances and the operations. And so we were a good team because we really divided and conquered. And, you know, now there are seven schools. And what I'm proudest of is they're the largest pre-K provider in New York City. There are almost 400 pre-Kers. So that's sort of what I would say my... I don't know. I like to create. I think I'll create again. I'm always looking for what are schools doing that are innovative and creative and how do we better serve kids and make sure, you know, we have the right people on our team. Mm -hmm. So
0: you first started out with this standards. Then you moved to this idea about writing across the curriculum. Then you came into this notion of inclusion. How do we take foster kids and create an environment where they have a sense of belonging? Then you move to the Zeta space where you're looking at pre-K and what does it mean to organize schools in the space for pre-K? And out of all these spaces, what are some things that you learned, Megan? What are your takeaways from all the creating that you've done that you incorporate into your future plans? Good question.
1: I think that context matters. I think that really understanding what does the community want, what does the community need? from their voices, really investing in where you are and also knowing that there are a lot of good things out there. There are a lot of good things to choose from. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. I like to tweak the wheel. And I think that hiring is really important. I was very adamant that we were gonna give people an experience I was hiring and the experience went like this. Okay, you wanna be a principal at Data. Here's what you have to do. I'm going to have you watch this video of a kindergarten lesson and it's not very good and we all know it. And so then you're going to take some notes and you're going to come to the interview and tell me what your feedback is. And then when you get to the interview and they take out their notes and they say, here you go, here's my assignment. And I'm like, nope, I'm the teacher. You're the principal. Give me some feedback. The whole point was to get people to understand like feedback is kind. Feedback should be welcomed. Feedback should be normalized because we're all trying to get better all the time. And by the way, you as a leader will get constant feedback because you have so many people who are coming to you. And so- Wait,
0: wait, wait, Megan, let's take a second on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaders get feedback. Oh, yeah. Uh, And regardless if you want it, regardless if you're in a mood for it, somebody's going to come back up to you and tell you how you're doing. You know it, you live it, right? Am I right? Uh, we all do. do yeah, we, all do. we a, all do. It is a gift, it is a gift to receive yes. uh, feedback. So you're telling me the story of your hiring and your principal or principal candidate needs to deliver this feedback to you in real time. And you're assessing.
1: Can they do it? Can they actually give it? So, you know, they start and they're very kind. They're very nice. They don't want to mess up. And at some point I do a timeout, okay, on a scale of one to 10, what's my lesson? And they're like, oh, it's a three. And I said, well, right now I feel like it's an eight. I just need to tweak a few things and then I'll be good, right? Mm-hmm. And then they look at me like, oh, no, that's not that. Then I'm not doing it. And I was like, okay, great. You have. To, I'll give you 10 minutes to redo your feedback and then we'll try it again. And so I, I think one of the things that was important to us when we were hiring people was that people felt like they, they went away learning more about what we value and deciding, is that a match for me? Mm. Because not everybody likes that sort of more intensive back and forth. But I think it just makes us better. I think it makes us stronger. And I think that, you know, a lot of places are afraid of it. And I just feel like when you try, when you get a taste of it, then everybody's like, come into my room. Tell me what I'm doing. Wrong. Right. Just help me do this thing. Help coach me around this thing because I'm not getting it. And I think that people start
0: to ask for it versus trying to avoid it, though. So, so before we get to our, our next idea, i want to really land on this. In your philosophy around principal hiring and leadership, this single quality that you really emphasize the most is the quality of feedback that the principal could give. Now, some people are focused on charisma. Some people are focused on, I mean, sometimes a fundraising is a, is a big deal in terms of executive director. There may be folks looking at operations in terms of how well can a principal organize systems and structures in a school? There's a lot of things you could look at, but for Mm -hmm. you it was how well and how concisely and clearly can a principal give feedback to improve instructional practices?
1: Yeah. I think that was a big part of it. I think it's also, we, you know, you run around like a crazy person when you're the leader of a school and you don't have a lot of time. So if we were going to have an hour long conversation about a 15 minute lesson that you were doing, it's just not efficient and it's not going to cut to like exactly what needs to happen next. And I'm not saying I always knew exactly what needed to happen next, but I wanted to get people to think on their feet Mm -hmm. fast. And so I think that was the idea behind the feedback is we, you know, did you, are you watching the faces in your room? And they're all kind of looking sleepy because things aren't happening efficiently enough. And, you know, I think different lessons have different times. You have to be, it's nuanced and you have to be flexible in your thinking.
0: So you started a number of schools across the East Coast, up and down, anywhere from Boston to Trenton. And then you started uh, a foundation and that's leveraged ed. So- Mm -hmm. Walk me through the transition from. I'm, I'm going to call you a serial school creator. How's that feel for you? Yeah, I like that. Okay, like if I walked down the street, I'd be like, "Oh my god, she's gonna she's gonna start a school. <sighs> Watch it! Don't get too close." Right? There's a standards based approach coming to your school closely. But then you shifted from creating schools to creating a foundation. So bring us into that space. What changed your thinking?
1: Yeah. So I think that one of the things that I kept thinking about is, okay, I'm one person and I can create these schools that then other people run, right? And that that's all well and good. But what if I could make an impact around making sure that I had more leaders that I had access to that were running different types of schools and I got to go see all of them, which I'm coming to you soon. We're on the calendar. But I love going to schools because I think that you learn a lot about like, huh, could that work in my context? Maybe if we just tweak these things or if we adapt these things. So I just kept thinking about bigger impact. And Mm -hmm. so Leverage Ed is an operating foundation. And so we're not a grant giving organization. We are an operating foundation. So think of it as like a library or a museum, right? It's we have public service is part of the the game and so we run programs for leaders really to help sustain them in their roles and so i think that a lot of times it's lonely as a leader you hope you get the feedback you need but sometimes you don't and i think that having a group of people who might not ever have met before because they're in different states, because they're in different situations. Having another thought partner who feels that same sense of, oh, there's so much to do. I wanted to do something and I didn't get to do it. Like, how frustrating is that? And can you share that with other people who can help you think through like, well, how could you solve your problem? Like, mm-hmm. help me solve my problem. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot of very strategic partnering of people. Once people are members of the collective, which is what we call it, it's because they're collective ideas. They're not just my ideas or my team's ideas. It's everybody's ideas. We have everybody go through a battery of self-assessments and so we matchmake who's in the cohorts together so that they'll be good thought partners to each other. And I really think that what we have found is people, when people say, mm. I sound my people, mm. I, that makes me really happy because I feel like that was the whole point is that I think that, you know, when you work in a big network of schools and there are lots of principals or lots of leaders, you have somebody to call. But if you work in a single school and you're not really close to the school next to you and you, it's very hard to find somebody who knows exactly what you're going through fitting in that seat. So that was sort of the idea. And then, you know, we just keep thinking about like, okay, well, what's next? You know, beyond cohorts, we've developed a few online courses that then we'll do cohorts around. But I have this dream. So this is my dream for the next year. We're going to go on a Ms. Frizzle school bus tour, you know, the magic school bus. Of course. And we're going to find out all the good stuff that people are doing in schools, discuss it again in cohorts, ask lots of questions, decide what could be done in what environments and adapt what we're experiencing in different contexts. Maybe we build schools. Maybe we reinvent parts of schools. Maybe we, I don't know move to the moon and develop a school there. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, but I do think that if we work together, there is, there's really nothing to stop us. Particularly if we reach across sectors, because I think there's so much promise in coordinating our musings about what the future might be and then how do we build it together. So your schools, David, are a good example of lots of different models that all have connection to each other but they're very different from each other and mm-hmm. you can all learn from each other because you're part of this network so mm-hmm. we're trying to do that with leaders and at this point we work with over 100 leaders from 25
0: states across the mm-hmm. country so you know we'll get to 50 someday when you were talking the first thing i thought to myself is particularly that notion of network problem solving that was like okay. hey, it was not like urban assembly principles right like one of the things I think that UA principals have is each other. I like to think I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I'm the CEO of Urban Assembly. I feel like I'm doing a really important job. And when I go to my principals, I'm like, you know, give me some feedback. They're like, you know, Dave, the most important thing as we like you, you're doing a good job out there, but really is each other, right? The ability to reduce that sense of stress, reduce that sense of loneliness, that you don't have to recreate the wheels and some of these solutions. And time and time again, I hear. Our principals name each other as the biggest source of support and companionship in in what we do at the Urban Assembly and innovation. Yep. Yep. I agree. I think that,
1: you know, it helps us be a little bit more nimble. I think it helps us adapt to the pace of change. The pace of change is crazy. And there's such a massive amount of information that you could take it all in and hoard your information or you could share it right? Or you could share it and say, hey, I have this idea. I don't know if it's going to work. Can you help me work through the idea with me? Maybe, you know, come walk my schools with me. I just feel like there's a lot that we can do collectively when we agree on this is a non-negotiable around kids getting a really great experience in schools. So then what does that mean for us as the adult? We have to constantly be thinking about What's next? What's the next step after this? Because if kids can do what you're giving them, it's not hard enough, right? It's not challenging enough. And kids like a challenge. So like, let's give them really
0: worthy challenges. Oh, we, we all like a challenge. I got back from, I was in Denver and I saw Ron Berger, who was my, one of my first or second guests. And when you just talked about this notion of a worthy challenge, that is a very Ron Bergery kind of conceptualization, right? Like, let's have tasks that are worthy of the young people that are in front of us. And I wanted to just call him out and elevate that connection around being worthy of our young people in terms of the, the learning experiences we plan for them.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that we have to remember everybody has humanity, right? And we all actually, we do thrive when we're right size challenged. And some of that is trying to figure out like, well, what is the right size? You know, some things might end up being so overwhelming and it's too big a challenge, but maybe you just need to add more people into the mix who have different strengths in order to make that challenge. Actually, you can turn it into something else, right? You can reinvent it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: I want to come back to what you talked about around tweaking solutions and how do we generalize solutions. In the beginning of our talk, you said you don't like to recreate the wheel. You just like to tweak what's happening. I think in education, we're struggling to recreate the wheel and to learn from other contexts, solutions that are pliable. And I want to offer an idea at the UAE. We focus on scaling generalizable problems and creating solutions for them for the education sector. So I want to turn this back to you in terms of your philosophy around learning. And then in in placing that learning into different contexts and ways that solve problems in education sector.
1: So I would say our theory of action at Leverage Ed is that if we support leaders by connecting them to each other, so other smart people in the room, right, with access to ongoing high-quality professional development, we are really specific about it being facilitated so that it's not just read this thing and then discuss, but that there is a really more rigorous way of affecting the whole, right, that people will be more likely to sustain their careers. I I think that there's, we have a, you know, we have a problem in our country, possibly across the world around people really feeling like they, this could be their career. And so we have a lot of people who are leaving the profession and how do we keep them? I'm currently in this doctoral program and that is the focus of my study is the challenges of the superintendency in urban locations. And I just feel like there it's, I don't think it's an unsolvable problem, but I do think that it takes a committed group of people who really want to work through that problem and think about, well, what could help sustain people? And if that, if you can find it it might end up being some incremental things before you really have a breakthrough. But I really think, again, if you hang on the collective action by really like sharing ideas and not being afraid to say like, I really messed up and Mm -hmm. here's how I really messed up, but here's what I learned from it. It's really not about the messing up. It's about what you do with what you learn afterward. So if I were to think about, you know, how do you solve the problems and then think about what do you take away? The generalizable part of what you've taken away is useful in lots of contexts. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of thinking more flexibly like, oh yeah, that that's similar to what we just experienced with another
0: problem. I hear you talking about one of the major problems that we're facing in education and that's sustainability of our, our workforce. I want to turn this into a larger conversation around what are the strengths and opportunities for public education in New York City and across the country and across the world. But maybe we could start off with this idea of the workforce as something that we really need to pay attention to in terms Mm -hmm. of sustainability. Yep.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, it's like the pace of change is so fast that we, you know, we don't know what's going to be next, what will be the next careers, uh, what will be the careers of the future. But we should be thinking about like, how do school and how do schools and different sectors intersect? Right. I had a good conversation with a friend who is an educator in Connecticut, and she was telling me about the Carnegie Foundation is rethinking the Carnegie unit. Yeah, And I thought, Okay. Well, let's go. Cause that's, it's been a long time since we've had this, you know, notion that we go to school for, you know, we have the whole summer off and we go to school for nine months of the year, 160 days. And then we have teenagers who we know do not like to get up early. I have four of them and I know that they do not like to get up early. And so I think like, why are we going to school starting at 8 a.m.? That Mm. doesn't make, why do we, what's the seat time in each of these different courses? Well, turns out, like if you bring industry in and you think about like what is happening right now, there are a lot of things that kids should be able to do by reaching across sectors. I love models where kids have internships while they're still in school. I think it just helps people to think like, how do you have a job? What does it mean to be an employee at an organization? and study at the same time, and the study complements what you're doing. I think it just, it helps connect the dots. And by the way, I think we'll be future, we'll be more future ready if we give kids, again, the worthy challenges that they might not know how to do yet, but maybe, you know, putting together a motor on a car is, actually something that will help them figure out something in mass that they hadn't thought about before because they're just thinking in a different way. So I don't have the all the solutions, but I just I do think about there are lots of different ways that you could solve problems. And I think one of them is hands on.
0: Yeah. I heard you talk about the pace of change. I heard you talk about sectors of innovation and how to intersect them with public education. And as you're talking about this, I imagine in the past, you we were like, oh, our teaching was go and close your door. And feedback wasn't really a thing. And people just like, long as students are not dying, we're good to go. And I want to expand that analogy because I feel like your vision of public education feels similarly opening. In so far as education has had a struggle, I would ar- argue, with taking input outside of their own feedback loop, right? So you go to Elementary school, and it's informed by middle standards. You go to middle school, it's informed by high school standards. You go to high school, they're informed mostly by college entrance standards, right? And then the industry kind of came in and I was like, you know, I, I think we have a stake in this. Recently, we're returning more to civic development, right? Society has said, I think we have a stake in this. But we've been struggling, I think, to shift as education because we are almost always informed by the standards of the next educational unit as opposed to being informed by the standards of what we're trying to accomplish for our students in the world.
1: Yep. Yeah. And we have this, the enormity of the problem is that we have a lot of school children across the country, right? So, but the notion of like having incubators for really great ideas, I think is really exciting. I, you know, dream, another dream is have a lab school where really it's a laboratory for ideas. Real kids go to school there and lots of people come visit and figure out and ask a lot of questions, sit with kids, ask them to like, tell me what you're doing. Tell me how you're thinking about that. How are you solving that problem? But I think that it does take other sectors to inform what is the future of what your jobs are going to look like and how do we make sure kids are prepared for that, not for a specific job, I would say more for the habits of thinking and more for the ways in which they solve problems, more for how do they collaborate? How do they get to better ideas faster? And so this notion of, you know, doing sprints around like, let's build this or let's think about this theory and let's see if we can make it practical. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that Part of it is exciting. I know I'm speaking like at a level that's not super concrete, but I don't know what it is yet. So I can't, I don't know that I can think of how concrete it needs to be.
0: It's a conversation about innovation, right? And there's a reason why coastal spaces tend to have more ideas than non coastal places, right? And it's the exchange of people, this exchange of ideas, and this exchange of perspectives and experiences. And I got to go back to that notion of a closed system in the education space. Again, I think the UA spent some time thinking about industry partners and how do we invite industry partners to invest in public education through themed schools and work-based learning opportunities? And then how do we then take our young people and then invest them back into the world, right? You, you talked, to mm-hmm. Megan, about habits of mind. There was a time where I asked a, a group of folks in Arkansas, a group of school leaders, and they were, I asked them, One was the first time where you really felt a sense of responsibility or stress or pressure to perform, where if you failed, it would really have an impact on yourselves and others. And almost everybody said, my first job. And then a number of people said, my first restaurant job. They're just like, that was intense. It was like 17, 18, right? And it's just that idea, like productive struggle, but also in a context of collaboration and also in the context of like relevant learning. And right. these things are things that we're trying to innovate around and scale and and reproduce, and we struggle with that because I think we are informed by the next thing rather than the right thing Mhm,
1: mhm, yep, I agree. I also think that it's we tend to pigeonhole what this is, right, and like really narrow the focus before we even know whether it should be narrowed. Maybe it should be much broader than what we're thinking, and so you know, I do think that it takes industry partners to inform. Yeah. I schools aren't gonna inform it because as you said, you know, kindergarten curriculum is based on like what first graders, what right? It's a stepping stone to the next level of education. It's not necessarily a stepping stone to a
0: passion that you wanna pursue for the rest of your life.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> So let's talk about amplifying what works on on Leveraged Ed. Your website says that we amplify what works. And I got to go back. I feel like you and I have similar kind of pathways, everything from camp counseling to amplifying, right? At the UA, we talk about scaling what works. So Hmm. what are examples of scale, educational scale? And what can we learn from scaling and generalizing solutions in the Hmm. educational space in a way that helps us do what works more often.
1: Yeah, so we, again, I think your organization is a really good example of this, right? Where you build something around, you have this social emotional learning that gives young people their sense of self, how they sit into the whole, that's an enduring thing. They're gonna take that with them for the rest of their lives. They're going to be able to really meet your mission to advance themselves right, through their economic and social mobility because that's what they've learned. And at the same time, you're spreading this beyond urban assembly because you know how to help schools do this in their own schools, right? So I think that some of it is just finding the bright spots, finding the proof points, finding the things that are really changing the game. And then taking that and like doing it really well first, right? Like not just, I have an idea and I'm going to spread it. No, I have an idea. I'm going to incubate it. I'm going to nurture it. I'm going to grow it within, and then I'm going to take it on the road, take the show on the road. Right. So really it, that's about adaptation, right? Yeah. Because then, because you have to contextualize it to the next place. This is so, a question
0: right? Because you talked about yeah. this developing schools. It's the, what's the fidelity? And we got let's go back a little bit to your Success Academy kind of days because that's a really specific way of thinking about scale, right? Mm-hmm. And balancing contextualization with fidelity is, is not always easy. No,
1: not easy. Yeah, yeah. The success model is very cookie cutter, right? You This is going to work here and it's going to work in all of these different places. And it does, but there's a lot of, centralized control over like what the environments are. And so that part of it is really important. And so, yes, so taking that show on the road and going somewhere else, if the training apparatus isn't working, if the operations isn't supporting, it's all the different pieces. It's not just the curriculum. It's not just the teachers in the rooms. It's not the leaders in the buildings. It's all of the whole. It's all of it and you need all of it to make the machine run. So I like to think about like, we, we've we done a bunch of codification projects, which yeah. have been really fun. We like to call the meetings, you talk, I type. And then we just ask a lot of questions. And yeah. it's really, it's about like thinking about the process as like thoughtful translation of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Because we try and listen really carefully to what isn't being said. Oftentimes, I think the founders or the creators of these systems, it's self-evident for them, but it's not evident for everyone else. And so the only way to really spread that idea with fidelity is to really understand all of the ins and outs. What else goes into that? How many people does it take to do that? How many resources does it take in order to produce those things? And so I think that you have to make your thinking visible, it's impossible to scale things that aren't visible to everyone else because the nuance is really important. The language is important, you know? And again, goes back to the soundtrack of like, what is the soundtrack? Oh, the soundtrack is, it's fast. Actually, we move at a fast clip and we fix things along the way, or we move at a slow pace, we're like a river. We pick up the things all along the moss on the stones and we incorporate it, but we do it slowly, right? This, Everybody this, has a different pace. So this, you gotta work with them.
0: This is reminding me of the difference between the training of special educators and other educators. And my father would say the best coach was the middling player. Like your really talented players are usually really bad coaches because they're just like, you know, you, you aim at the basket and it just goes in, right? Like you just run real fast, right? And in special education, we have this idea of task analysis where we're trying to really get clear about what are all the things that go into, there's an exercise we do, how to make a peanut butter sandwich, right? And you like open the bag. And like, I think about what you're talking about in scaling. I think about what you're talking about in terms of contextualization and what are the things that we take for granted that are actually driving the outcome and how do we listen for those things, you know? And then, how do we codify them? Because these are things I think that are hard. And when you're doing it, you're like, yeah. So the students go from here to here, but like, well, well, why? Like, why do they go from here? Like, how 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 do they go from here to there? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do they hold hands? Do they stand in silent lines? All of those little things matter. That's all part of the ecosystem of what we're doing in schools. And if you really want somebody to succeed, then you have to be really explicit about what it means to succeed in that context. And some of that is generalizable. It's probably 80% of things that people do in schools is probably pretty similar. But the 20% is what makes that school that school. Mm -hmm. Mm So you have to really, again, listen for what is the tone of the school, you know, What do the walls say about the school? What do they value? And do you share those values? Because taking what that is and putting it in your context, if you have different values, it's going to flop unless you actually really understand these things have to change in order for it to work. We were working with one school around codifying a more equitable pipeline to leadership. Mm -hmm. And so... They weren't expecting that we were just going to hand them a, here's how you do it. Here's the playbook. And I was like, I can't do that. You have to tell me all about your mission, vision, values. All of the things have to align. Your language has to align. Don't just take something off the shelf and plunk it in there and say, those are your goals. You have to come up with those things yourself. And a big thought. I thought you were going to do the work for us. And I said, no, I can't possibly. I don't live in your zone. I have to understand. So I have to listen. You have to tell me more. And same thing with choosing curriculum. Like you could choose any curriculum. I'm actually pretty agnostic as to which curriculum you use, so long as it's good for kids and they're learning. Mm -hmm. But Again, if it doesn't go with your mission, vision, values, if it doesn't align, it's not going to make sense in your Mm -hmm. context.
0: This comes from the diffusion of innovations concept with compatibility. Like how to create compatibility with an idea, innovation, and a new idea, right? And your existing values. And and this is a thing that is hard, right? Because you're saying, and we've seen this, that it takes time to merge what you believe with what you're trying to accomplish in in the new thing. And most folks don't even know what they believe. They don't actually have a sense of their mission and values. I mean, they have an idea, it's written somewhere, but like, what do I believe? What are my values? How do I approach education? And Mm -hmm. I'm really resonant with what you're talking about because that scaling space often fails so often because we don't do enough of this compatibility work. What is the link between And in instruction, it's like linking to prior ideas. Hey, we taught this and now we're going to link it here. But in culture and schools and organizations is linking to values.
1: I think a lot about, you know, I care about the outcomes for kids, but I also care about the experience that they're having. So you can get the highest test scores and it could be a miserable place for kids Mm -hmm. or you could have it be such an amazing place for kids and get terrible outcomes. Both of those things can be true or you can do things in the way that you do them as to your values that actually that's what you want, right? You want that nice through line of the outcomes are high and so is the experience Mm -hmm. and the experience matches what your values are as a school and that's what everybody believes in everybody is actually behaving in that same they're speaking to each other in the language of the school Mm -hmm. i just think that the alignment is really really important from the children all the way through the adults to the parents to the community it's that web of like you touch one thing that's a hot button and it's it ripples everywhere right if it goes against your values
0: there's another thing that you said, and I want to raise this up as well. There's an the idea that, in fact, nothing is generalizable. Everything is context-specific. And I disagree, and I think you disagree, because I heard about an 80-20% yeah. split from you, right? That 80%, it's like relationships. Every relationship is unique, but in fact, people have studied relationships, and there's like five problems in relationships, right? Like, And they're consistent across many relationships. It's just about how we interact with those problems in different spaces. And I just want us to spend a little bit of time on this because there is an idea that everybody is unique. Every organization is unique. You could not possibly take a solution and generalize it or abstract it enough to make sense in different contexts. But I don't think that's the case. I think that there are certain things that work So I want to throw that to you, Megan. Hit me up with your ideas on this. Oh, yeah. There are definitely things that work. You
1: know, you think about, okay, kindergartners at lunch. Or teenagers at lunch. Those things are very different. They look very different from each other. But can we generalize some things that just should be norms around they need to eat their lunch? That's to me is kind of rule one is that they need to be eating. So, you know, but you can do things like in some schools, you might have lunch where the kids are chatting and they're up and in and out of their seats and whatever. Or you have some schools that everybody is silent and they are eating lunch. Those things can be—they can look very different. They're all eating lunch, mm-hmm. but they're doing it in different ways. So I just feel like eighty percent is you get something to eat, you fill yourself with nutrients, and because you're going to go back into the classroom or you know onto your next thing, and so we want to make sure that you are nourished. That's generalizable. How it happens. I don't know. I mean, every school has a different way of doing their system. How do you get kids to recycle this, compost this, put that in the trash? Teaching that to kindergartners takes a long time. Teenagers, you know, they know that bin goes for that. So I I don't know. I, I think that we can generalize things, but there will be specific things that are very related to This is the way we do things around here.
0: I I feel like what I'm hearing, this is the idea of there are common challenges, common problem sets across schools, organizations, relationships, but our solutions can be unique. And I'm going to go back, but they don't have to recreate the wheel. And I just, I want to name this one more time, right? Like somebody out there has solved at least 10% of the problems that I'm working on, right? My job is to get to them fast enough so that I don't have to spend mental energy solving the Mm -hmm. same problem that they've already Mm -hmm. contributed to.
1: And so you can find the problem before the problem finds you, right? Because at that point, it's too late. The problem is massively bigger than it was before you knew about it. So yeah, let's be better problem solvers by actually noticing what are the commonalities in these problems and getting to what the root is and not just the symptoms. Because I think we often will, you know, slap a Band-Aid on what the symptoms are, and we'll take care of it later. But that doesn't, we know that doesn't work. Actually solving for what is the issue? Is it, you know, is it (laughs) the context or is it actually, no, that's a solvable thing and we should just solve it.
0: Well, in your career, you have spent all your time thinking about how to solve problems in education. We talked a little bit about how you got into education. We talked a little bit about, your work in camp counseling, your starting of schools, you're thinking about leveraged ed to amplify and scale solutions. We talked about this idea of where you see education moving. And this leads me to my last question for you, Megan. And it's focused on the title of the show. In everything that you've done, what is the innovation in education that you are most proud of? That's a big question. I think I like what I'm doing right now. I really, I didn't think
1: that this is where my trajectory would take me. I thought I would keep popping around and helping people start schools. But I really like what I'm doing now. I'm meeting so many interesting people. The people are really the value. A couple weeks ago, I was part of this group. We were having a discussion about the social contract. And we were all going around and talking about like our organizations and what we do. And somebody stopped me and he said, You do everything pro bono, like you give it away, then where's the value? And I said, the value is in the people. In Mm -hmm. fact, in this room right now, this is parallel to what I get to do every day. And I do think that the thing that is maybe innovative about what I'm doing is I want to make sure that leaders have access to high quality professional development to each other to really like help them connect with each other because it turns out these problems are they're pervasive but guess what if you have a whole bunch of committed smart people in the same space they can solve those problems and they can solve them with each other and so I just feel like we're a nonprofit, we're an operating foundation we're sort of this hybrid mix and so oftentimes people are like I don't get what you do. And I said, I like to think about it as like, we have this dial tone of ongoing professional development that's always available. We are very intentional about building relationships within the group of people that we work with. And everybody has to apply and everybody has to interview. And that's very intentional because the quality of the people is the value. Mm. And so let's make sure we got quality people at the table because they're there for themselves to make sure that they're constantly kind of thinking about like, how do I grow and sustain what I'm doing? And they're there for each other because they're good thought partners. They understand what it is to walk in those shoes.
0: Well, Megan, thank you for all that you've done in public education. And thank you for appearing on our show here. Innovations in education with David Adams, and I look forward to looking at all the wonderful things that come out of Leverage Ed Foundation in the future. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.